Today's from Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Thank you, Diane. Good morning, everyone. I was um, listening to some of your um, prayer requests, and it just it prompted in me, because we have a, a brother-in-law, my sister's, excuse me, my wife's sister's husband is uh, quite terminal, I think, in, in hospital, a lifelong smoker, which is um, not unusual, of course. Um, and he's always been an atheist, or he calls himself a realist, but an atheist. And I asked Tina, you know, what, what does he think of at this time? I remember having a conversation with somebody who does palliative care. And I said, so what happens when you come to an atheist? And they said, you know, everybody wonders. They come to those days and they wonder. Were they right in saying there ain't nothing more than this? And uh, I, I wondered about that with, um, with my brother-in-law. What does he think at this point? Does he say to himself, is there really this? Is this really all it is? I hope there's more. I would imagine you would. I remember once somebody saying, I'm a proud atheist. I thought, what a strange concept, a proud atheist. I would be proud to have a belief in something that I could hold on to, but proud to be uh, of a concept that there ain't nothing beyond this would be a strange pride for me to have. But anyway, just a thought I'd had in my head since um, I know my brother-in-law is um, in very poor shape, and he faces the end, as he knows. Everyone seated here today, every life represented in this room, can be summed up as a sum total of a set of experiences, some lengthy, some a little shorter. Some will have been so good that they make you smile years later. Your first ride on a roller coaster, the day you graduated with your bachelor's degree in hand, the day you got your car over 100, <laughs> remember that day? Yeah, there's a few out there. Chevy drivers, I assume. <laughs> the entire summer you may have spent as a teenager on the lake. You know, those kind of memories that years later you still smile about. Some remembrances will be much tougher in the recalling. The passing of a grandparent. Or maybe a business that you sure was going to take off, but years later it folded. Maybe a love that you had for somebody, but it wasn't returned. Memories, some of them good, some perhaps not so good. And just as everyone here has a past, everyone here has a future. But it's the past I'd like to speak just a little on today. Because the fact is, it's a distinct human tendency to actually whitewash or idolize the past. There have been some pretty controversial figures in U.S. history. 
let them pass away. Our memory slackens a little bit. The past gets rosier as the years move on. Pretty soon, the local library is named in their honor. In one sense, this is actually a good thing. I mean, who wants to spend time dwelling on these ridiculous injustices or the hurts that befell you in the past? Heck, I'd rather remember the good times than focus on the bad. To that end, it's good that the pain of yesterday is kind of hard to recall. Because in the, 34, in the 43rd chapter of Isaiah, God is quoted as saying, forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. I am doing new things. Can you see them springing up? I've always thought that God has a focus on moving on, a focus on the future. And I get that idea by the numerous prophecies that are in the Bible of things that are yet to come, events that are yet in the future. Or the parables, for instance, that Christ spoke, where he pointed out the work that was still ahead for the fledgling church. It's not that God doesn't acknowledge the past. Oh no, far from it. But the difference seems to me that we as humans have the distinct ability when thinking of the past to kind of romanticize it. We call them the good old days. You know, the 12 kids and no birth control days, the good old days. It's not unusual for us to develop a bit of a longing for the old days. After all, we've been created with a brain to both reason and remember. And why not? After all, there are several scriptures in the Bible that ask us to recall what God has done for us, to remember when we were without a God, or at a low point, and our God stepped in at just the right time to lift us and deliver hope. It's a good remembrance to have. God says, recall those days. But by the, same uh, by the same token, or the same measure, an exceptionally unhealthy place for Christians to be is in a bit of a make-believe Netherland where we constantly long for a non-existent past. The pursuit of this romanticized past has led people to sidetrack their careers, squander finances, displace their families. And alongside romanticizing the past is another human tendency. We call it idealism. For some reason, really passionate and faithful Christians are often saddled with idealism and a romantic view of the past. So alongside romanticizing the past, another human tendency is idealism. And for some reason, really passionate Christians, I hope there are many here, and faithful are saddled with idealism and a romantic view of the past. The idea that if we want it bad enough, we can have it. And it existed once in the past, and we can reclaim it. And idealism isn't bad. It powers the pursuit of what could be and what we should be. We grasp onto something, and it's the fuel that turns crazy dreams into reality. Idealism is kind of a view that looks around, it's dissatisfied with what it sees, and it wants a higher standard. It's not a bad thing at all, but if we couple it with an unhealthy dose of cynicism, it gets pretty rough pretty quickly. Pretty soon, you come to the conclusion that the present is all bad and the future looks really bleak, and all the best times are back in the past. 
Christians seem particularly susceptible to this. And I suspect it's because we sign up for a higher calling. We're idealistic. We sign up for something higher. We want to take the path less taken, the high road. Christianity seems, oddly enough, tailor-made for the idealistic cynic, if we're not careful. It's easy to look at churches, maybe even certain preachers on TV or in the community, and even the direction that your own church is moving in and say, it's just not what it used to be. It's not what it once was back in the old days. How many of you have ever actually read the Bible front to back? You don't need to answer, but you did. Well, if you have, you should know one thing for sure. Everything has been messed up since about Genesis 3. Did you notice that? <laughs> and that includes, oddly enough, the early church. I grew up in a very conservative Christian church. And these, church have one, these churches have one very interesting characteristic. They have a totally unrealistic idea of the early church. They think it's bliss, and they're always trying to restore the current church to the old ways and the old days, because of course, the old days were way better. You think, or they think, that the early New Testament church was full of super saints charging the hill for Jesus, all on fire for the Word of God. This is nonsense, and if you've read the Bible, you will know this. The early church was a mess. Like today's churches, like today's churches, it was filled with sinners. They were forgiven, but they were sinners nonetheless. Our reading this morning included Acts 1, 4 through 8. And I'm actually going to read it just again for a moment to get the idea of what was actually happening here in the church and to point out just how unromantic the church in the past has been. So Christ or it's written on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, he said, but wait for the gift that my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you can be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he said to them, look, it's not, not, not for you to know the times or the dates that the father has set by his own authority. So he skirted the question. But... Here's the command. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. You're going to spread a gospel in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Exciting. The early church was just getting going. They were there in the presence of, Christ, of uh, the risen Christ. Because so far it sounds great. They've been asked to await the Holy Spirit. They were asked to then go throughout Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the earth proclaiming the gospel. And when the Holy Spirit came, what happened? Nothing. They didn't go anywhere. They ignored the Great Commission. They hunkered down in a holy huddle. And they awaited the return of Christ. They were entirely uninterested in the work put before them. The early church decided that waiting on the return of Christ was way better. Talk about taking the easy road. God had to send, and you'll read this, a persecution. God had to send a persecution to the early church to get these people moving. Sound like the good old days yet? Not really. 
Ignoring the Great Commission wasn't the only problem that the early church had. They wanted to keep everything kosher. What I mean is, if you were Gentile, you were not welcome. Did the open hearts, open minds, open doors motto adorn the early church door? No, it actually didn't. There's no way to sugarcoat it. The early church was actually racist. Even Peter was unwilling to share the gospel with a Gentile until God sent him a vision. Even then, he had to repeat it three times. And even after all of that, many in the Jerusalem church continued to insist that Gentiles needed to adopt Jewish laws and Jewish customs. Good old days? No. Not yet. Maybe never. Even the early church leaders had plenty of issues. Peter, it turns out, was kind of hypocritical at times. One time, while he was in a town of Antioch, a group of legalists came from Jerusalem to force the Gentiles to follow Jewish religious customs. Peter gave in to their pressure. He supported a cause that he actually knew to be wrong, and it led some believers at that time astray. And Paul had to actually rebuke him publicly. Despite being responsible for a lot of the New Testament writings, even Paul was not a great example oftentimes in the early church. Paul struggled quite a bit, we read, with pride to such an extent that it says in 2 Corinthians 12 that God sent a thorn in his flesh, a messenger from Satan, to keep him from being conceited. And he admitted to that. But that's not all. Paul had a pretty major falling out with an apostle named John Mark. Apparently, the mission trip that they went on got pretty rough, and John Mark backed out. He just went home, said, that's not for me. When it was time later for another trip, Barnabas, who was another disciple at the time, wanted to give this John Mark another chance. Paul actually refused. In fact, you'll read this, the issue became so big, they split over it. And as far as we can tell, they never actually worked together again. And this John Mark, well, he actually wrote a book in the Bible. It's right after Matthew. It's the Gospel of Mark. Apparently, God felt his writing to be worthy of a part of the Bible, but Paul felt that he was unworthy of a simple mission trip. And hey, here's an interesting window into the early church. You'll find it in 1 Timothy and the book of Titus. Paul was instructing Timothy and Titus on how to pick church leaders when they established churches. And he advised them to avoid the town drunk, avoid anyone with a violent temper, anyone who likes to argue a lot, or has a history of shady business dealings, or is generally unfaithful. Apparently, the early church was so raw in nature, Paul felt that these guys actually needed to be told to avoid these people in the congregation. Sound like the good old days to you? Whenever you delve into these topics and you start to understand just how flawed everyone is 
and how everyone is in dire need of grace, it becomes abundantly clear why it's written in Colossians 3.1, keep focusing on the things that are above where the Messiah is seated at the right hand of God. Further down the road, in history when the church went somewhat astray, selling indulgences and the like, God had more up his sleeve. He sent a man named Martin Luther, who nailed 95 theses to a church door in Wittenberg in Germany, and he sparked the Protestant Reformation, or a result of that. Later, other movements came about, including the one that puts this one, this church here on the map, the Holiness Movement, and several more like it, since, such as Evangelicalism, the Jesus Movement. And none of them is going to be worthy to be considered the good old days, or in any, t any way a time to return to. If you're tempted to think that the best of Christianity, the best days of Christianity are gone, that they're behind us, that the church is just hanging on because it's all changing and none of it's any good. You want to return to the good old days because that's when people filled the pews and the choir really rocked. Well, you need to know that God is still at work. The good old days are today. Don't ever be tempted to think the best is behind and the future of Christianity is awfully murky. That's been done by many people before, and they have all been wrong. It wasn't that long ago that Time magazine had a cover that read, Is God dead? Its experts predicted the end of faith and the takeover of dialogue and rational thinking. This God thing, this faith thing, it's dead. And it really looked like there was going to be no future for a church. But I remember a story of Christ who once stood in a group of people and he pointed at a man and he said, you're Simon Peter and upon you I will build my church and the gates of hell, they will not prevail against it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that we can come before you in a church setting, but we know that you have many plans for the future. And we know that you have a future for all of us. We thank you that we have had a past with you, but we thank you more, in fact, that we have a future with you. Because the future that you've promised us is broad, it's colorful, it's exciting, and yet we don't even know what it is. We just know we're excited about it. We want to be excited Christians, excited for the future that you have for us, and we ask that you instill that in us, that we put the past where it is, which is gone. We incorporate the good memories in us, and we use them to anticipate and excite ourselves about the future you have for us. And we do so in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Mm -hmm.